0: There's nothing that competes with the fact that New York is the greatest city on the face of the earth. I've been in New York at its best, and I've been in New York at its worst, and nothing, nothing will ever take me away from this incredible city. It's the best. That was Harry Belafonte for New York City Next, and this is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda-Salgado. When the pandemic first hit New York City, we watched many of our neighbors leave. We saw businesses shut their doors, and we witnessed the city's health care and essential workers risking their lives on a daily basis. Headlines like New York City is dead forever began taking over our newsfeeds. But in the midst of this were glimpses of hope. First, it was small gestures, a 7 p.m. cheer for healthcare workers. Then, we saw life flourish on open streets. Activists came together to protest for racial justice. And quickly, community groups began finding creative ways to help. Maybe this wasn't the New York we knew and loved. But couldn't some of these changes lead to something even better? One organization intent on spreading the word that New York is not in fact dead is New York City Next. Since March of 2020, this army of volunteers has been creating moments of joy across the city. Today, Epicenter's Mitra Kalita speaks to Mariam Banakira. Miriam is a founder of New York City Next and also the head of marketing at Nextdoor. Previously, she led four major businesses through sweeping transformations, earning her a reputation as a bold leader. And just like us, Miriam has a passion for bringing local communities together. Before we begin, a quick message from our friends and sponsors at McKinsey & Company.
1: The shortlist is a weekly curated sampling of McKinsey's need-to-know stories about work, the economy, and culture.
2: 60% of Black workers live in the South. So I think you are seeing companies start to say, why don't instead of expecting diverse talent to move to us, why don't we open up a hub in a more diverse location?
3: That's Brian Hancock from the McKinsey Talks Talent Podcast, featured in a recent shortlist newsletter. He's discussing the future of work. For
1: more of our best ideas, quick and curated, check out the shortlist at mckinsey.com forward slash shortlist. That's mckinsey.com forward slash shortlist.
0: And thanks. Now, back to the show. Here's Mitra and Mariam.
2: So I think we can start at the beginning, which is New York City Next launched during a really confusing time in New York. And so I got to tell you my own interaction with it was I was finding a million Facebook groups for people leaving New York City. And then your sister tweeted about something you all were doing on the steps of New York Public Library to really assert that New York was not over. So that was my introduction to it, which might've been a little late. So tell me about your origin story.
1: So honestly,
2: what happened was in
1: August, really literally August 19th, I was just tired of all the stories of New York being dead. That guy, James Alchell, whatever had written that comedy story. There were so many of those. And even in my day job, I was just hearing that. Right. And so I was like, what are we going to do to help? And so with my husband and Carolyn Donahue, we emailed a group of people and said, I don't know about you, but here's the 10 stories that say the city's death. What are we going to do to help? When there's a lot of issues going on in the city from homelessness to like litter pickup the problems are not small, but what we basically came down to is one of the things that was quintessentially New York was the arts, like the artist community are the soul of the city. And in many ways, in order to be able to do the hard work that we're all going to have to do, you also need to remember joy. And so we were like, how can we actually use our superpower to go do and show people that the joy is still here and that you can unfreeze and find your way? And then we just literally got to doing, I mean, that first email was August 19th. I went back to look. And like five weeks later, we did our very first pop-up in Chelsea. I mean, honestly, it was an email to my address book, right? And then mine, Carolyn, Andy's. And then we literally like set up a spreadsheet. We were all sort of entrepreneurs at heart, right? We got to doing and then we were like, let's just go do something because you can sort of stay in that, like, what's the perfect thing to do? So we were like, let's just go do, we'll learn by doing. The first event that we did with um, Ilya Villafranca was right in our own neighborhood. So it was easy to do. It was kind of a proof of concept. We were like, if we can do this, we'll learn. But literally in that, we also were able to start planning the one that was the biggest one that we did next, which was that moment for Broadway, right? So Tom Kitt and My- Michael McElroy sort of had this idea of, getting the song from Stephen Sondheim Sunday from Sunday in the park with George. It's a song about like rebirth. It seemed like the perfect song. But again, the city wasn't giving out permits and we were like, it'd be great to do it on those red steps of TKTS. And everybody was like, there's just no way that's going to happen. And you know, Mitra, like as a good immigrant, I like a good no. And I was like, okay, we can problem solve for this. Like within our network, we have people.
2: So for people who might not have seen it, just describe the event on the steps of It's the TKTS booth, right? The steps that are near there. The red TKTS steps, yeah. So that's pretty iconic. The image itself was very evocative. So just tell us what we would have been looking at if we were walking by that day. We
1: literally had 24 Broadway performers, including Bernadette Peters, um, Norm Lewis, Tony Award-winning illustrious names, Broadway Inspirational Voices, which is an amazing, amazing group that Michael McElroy created. And they basically performed socially distanced. The steps were perfect because you could actually be
3: separate.
2: Tell me about the event on the steps of New York Public Library. That's one of my favorites. Well, Nancy
1: Mercado, Daniel Watson, and Ming Jung Lee said yes to that one. We all love our public libraries. It is literally the home of so many um, inspirations besides amazing works of art. We got a trio to come and perform a song where that actual song is um, housed in that public library on 42nd Street. And they basically did They read from their writing and poems. Daniel Watts actually did a spoken word poem, and they just stood there and read. And Ming-Jung Lee had written a piece for The Times, which she read, which was about going to visit Koreatown.
3: My city is five
1: boroughs, and on each block there are businesses, and each one there's a counter, and that's where you and I meet. I mean, honestly, so, so amazing. I'm
2: forever indebted to all three amazing. of them in the trio who yeah. performed. Well, Lee as a daughter of Queens, kind of never does us not proud. So when I oh, saw no. that she was oh, doing yeah. that, it was like, oh, she's such a symbol of New York, but to the point that we've been, she's also so accessible to New Yorkers. And so what I think you all did was really made these artists and their work accessible in a way that maybe pre-pandemic we might not have felt, right? So- you know, we th- I think about this a lot. We actually talk
1: about it. You know, basically you had performers who before were sort of behind hedges or in big buildings, like on the streets. One of my favorite moments was when we had the Metropolitan Chorus singing on the steps of the Metropolitan Museum, was looking around and seeing the kids that were playing socially distant at the preschool looking over to the doorman from the fancy building on 86th Street. Like The arts were in the street. And I think that that is really one of the gifts, if there is a gift or silver lining to the pandemic, was, to your point, making it accessible.
2: There have been pockets of New Yorkers doing the thing you and I have been doing. And, you know, we don't see it as competitive in any way. We're like, look, this is amazing. There was so much positivity in the face of um, just tremendous tragedy that you hope that that uh, keeps us going because it feels like in some ways, just as we feel like we're coming out of it, it's like, no, no, not so fast, right? And, And so, you know, there's something about those early days of the pandemic that, you know, we won't get back the not knowing what was going to happen. And so to have this joy Was like really quite pure. For us, it was
1: an incredible open source moment. Like it was never about us. In fact, to your point, Mitra, I ended up um, writing an op ed for USA Today because I had met so many people like you, like Barbara, who had started Art in the Avenues, where she was basically getting submissions for art and putting it into empty storefronts, or um, Maya, who started Shop in NYC, where it was like enabling small businesses to be able to sort of use digital to actually get get you to, you know, shop from them because nobody was going into stores. Like there were so many efforts and it was never about us. Right. And so I think I've learned a ton, right. I've had all kinds of jobs, but this is a community driven project. Nobody's the boss. Everybody comes in and rolls up their sleeves and gets into it. Tell me,
2: The video that is about to, uh, so we're, we're speaking before it's debuted, but tell me how it came together. I mean, honestly,
1: what happened is we did, we've done 14 pop-ups and sort of to your point, everybody donated their time, but what ended up happening is that like you, one of the first things in our network, like some people, their way of supporting the city was donating. So really friends and family sort of sent in small checks And so we raised about a hundred thousand dollars over the course of that period. And we paid the artists. We, we were like, you know what, the artists are the hardest hit, you know, they've been out of work for months on end. I mean, the, those of us who could afford not to, you know, we weren't, none of us were getting paid. Gary Vayner donated PR help. Our man in Havana built the website. You know, it was like literally everybody was, you know, smarty pants videotaped for free, but the actual artists, we actually gave everybody a stipend. We thought that really mattered. But what ended up happening is the pop-ups inspired the governor's office to do New York pops. So one of the interesting things was like, by doing, we showed other people that it was possible to do. And so um, in December, I remember there was five of us on a phone call. We said, okay, well, so the pop-ups are now becoming a thing and people are doing it. We don't need to go do that anymore because that's happening. How can we be useful? And I remember we thought, could we do a love letter for Valentine's Day? That, That was the ambition at that point. And then we started talking about um, sort of brainstorming and came up with this idea. We all remembered, we're all children of the 80s. We remembered we are the world, how magical that was. And then Tom came up with the idea of um, Billy Joel's New York State of Mind, because he wrote that song in the 70s at another time when the city really was in a bad place and he was coming back and it's really an anthem for the city. And so we were like, if we could get the rights to Billy Joel's New York State of Mind, we can shoot it sort of like we are the world, but not in a studio because, you know, it's still in the height of COVID. We can shoot it. um, Iconic New Yorkers, well-known, lesser known, but all amazing in different parts of the city and iconic locations. So as if the city was your studio and that's how we lit. you know, December. And now we're going to launch this Sunday on Sunday on the CBS Sunday morning show. It's been an absolute labor of, you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And we have many, many performers from Stephen Colbert to Dina Menzel to Andy Cohen to the Clasmatics. So everybody did this for free. They all donated their talent, their time. It took a bear of an effort to, you know, unlock all of that. But we looked at it and it, it brings you to tears. It's like an absolute love letter to the city.
0: Some folks like to get away, take a holiday. From the neighborhood, hop a flight to Miami Beach or to, to Hollywood. I'm taking a gray out on the Hudson River Line.
2: I'm in a New York state of mind.
1: And so, you know, you see it now, and it seems so easy. And it's so magical. And I, like, we've all lived like what it took to get
2: here. And so I, I actually salute you for that. The one event we worked on together was a live stream of mourning in the Rockaways. But there was an image, which was your artist who was doing the art installation yeah, for the morning. Yeah. There was the Black Surfers Association who were carting out I think roses or flowers to yeah, the beach. Yeah, into the ocean, yeah. The ocean. And then we had the beach itself, just kind of the Atlantic Ocean uh, on an October day. And then we had the crowd, which to your point, didn't know this was happening. And so it was an eclectic group of who's out and about on a Saturday morning.
3: My name is Willie Martinez and this is the Willie Martinez Latin Jazz Quartet. Here for a, on a beautiful day for a beautiful cause. What a beautiful ceremony that was with the Flower of Hearts. That was just absolutely gorgeous. I want to thank uh, New York Next for inviting us to be a part of this wonderful uh, occasion and event. Uh, we're going to continue now with a little bit more music to get your body shaking so you can stay warm. But, uh, was, uh, what
2: action do you hope people are prompted to take after watching this video or attending one of your pop-ups or engaging with NYC Next?
1: Look, in the end, the video is an amazing testament and it will you know, do what it does, which is hopefully bring joy and inspire. What we're driving to is we're redoing the homepage of NewYorkCityNext.org to actually link to opportunities for how you can support your city. And again, it's a big tent moment. We're listing a bunch of organizations from New York Cares to Roar, like, you know, just that sense of being there for each other as a community is what we want to enable. And I think this is a moment for we and not me. And I think that That's how we're going to recover. Because by the way, like, I don't know who said New York was dead. We're never dead. We're going to always come back better. And as a kid who was an immigrant, this was the first city that made me feel like I belonged. And I was like, you know what? Not only is it not dead, we will be fighting to death. That's what New Yorkers do. In moments that are bad, we come together and we fight and we imagine things better. And we're going to do it together.
0: The 2020 census data has just been released and the numbers are on our side. While we're hearing claims that New York City is dead, the population grew to a record-breaking 8.8 million, fueled by immigrants. And as our city continues to get bigger, we're excited to share the stories of our neighbors, both old and new. Next, we're sharing a story from one of our neighbors, like you. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Derek Melander, If you subscribe to our newsletter, then you may already be familiar with Derek's art. In his words, he creates sculptures out of clothing that explore the intersection between global consumerism and the intimate relationship we have with what we wear.
3: My name is Derek Melander. I create large geometric sculptures from carefully folded and stacked secondhand clothing. It's important to me that every garment I work with has been worn, that it's had a life. The garments I sculpt with are sourced from local communities, and the resulting works function like collective portraits. These works often take the form of columns, walls, and sometimes enclosures you can enter. They typically weigh between 800 pounds and 2 tons. People often ask how I got started working with clothing. Around 2002, I was working on a series of sculptures made with hand-carved metal suitcases. I wanted to display the suitcases on display columns, but the standard white box felt too stuffy and too formal. I thought, okay, well, what material is naturally associated with suitcases? Clothing, of course, came to mind, and I started to make display columns from carefully folded and stacked secondhand clothing. Over the course of that first year, working with clothing every day, I got hooked. Over the past 10 years, most of my exhibitions have been overseas with major projects for Star Street Precinct in Hong Kong, the YAA Art Fair in Paris, France, Die Warrande in Turnhout, Belgium, and Museum Reisvig, The Hague in the Netherlands. During the pandemic, my biggest challenge as an artist has been the lack of opportunity to create and exhibit my art. I work mostly by commission and typically far from home. The project teams are often large and we tend to work in relatively close proximity. That approach to making work was obviously a no-go during the pandemic. In addition, the industries that commission my work typically were hit hard by the pandemic. My most recent project in the physical realm was as a visiting artist lecture to FIT on March 8, 2020. The following week, the school paused in-person classes, and my husband's office went remote. I had such mixed emotions preparing for the talk. On one hand, I was super excited and flattered, but on the other hand, it felt like the world was falling apart all around me, and it actually was. After two very difficult years, I hope we can all experience more art in the physical realm and more freely. Art should be a part of our emotional recovery, but it should also be a part of the economic rebuilding of New York City. I'm currently working on a new modular sculpture to be displayed in Diversity Plaza in Jackson Heights and I hope to engage with people underserved by the arts. I love Jackson Heights and have lived here with my now husband for over 20 years. I moved to New York City around 1987 to form a garage punk band and spent the interim years living on the rough and ready Lower East Side. Living in New York City all these years has been really fun, nurturing and energizing and uh, when you tell people you're an artist they are usually interested. It's not like that everywhere. I love our street culture. We are cool. We trash pick and even dumpster dive without shame. We have a lot of style. We are bold. Walking around the neighborhood, my favorite New York City sound lately is the Mockingbird. I know that's controversial, and uh, I obviously do not have one living outside my window, but it's interesting. It has its own calls, but it's famous for imitating other common birds. Crazy thing is, they also mimic car alarms and sirens. They are basically DJs sampling the sounds of the neighborhood and playing them back to us. You can learn more about my work by googling D-E-R-I-C-K-M-E-L-A-N-D-E-R.
0: Organizations like New York City Next and artists like Derek have helped people find joy in a time of tragedy. But you don't have to be an artist to help your community. As Mariam said, there are so many great ways to get involved or volunteer. If you don't know where to start, let us help. Become a member of Epicenter NYC today. Also, make sure to check out the full New York State of Mind video by New York Next. You'll see some familiar faces like Indina Menzel, Stephen Colbert, and Sarah Bareilles. We've linked to it in our show notes. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Kravaka. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.